Open up your Bibles to Genesis 3. There are some issues that we're not going to really touch on here on Sunday morning. Our Bible conference this year going to be focused on these type of issues, um, the issues of like evolution, the creation of the universe, um, science, and things like that. Um, that's coming up in January. The information is being talked about. You'll hear more about it as we get closer. So if you think I'm skipping over some stuff, I am, because someone better than me is going to take on some of those issues and all. Open up, let's see, in Genesis 3, let's read verses 1 through 6, all right? Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat. For from from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. And the woman, and God, for God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it and ate, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. Well, you know, when you read this passage, if you, if you read it like you've never read it before, if you read it like you've never read it before, you come to a place and you have to ask yourself, you know, there is a serpent in here. Who, who is that serpent? Consider that you've, you've, you don't really have all the end of the story, which you're familiar with, whether you've read it or not. Consider that you haven't been studied it before, and, and most of us are familiar with many parts of the story, so the serpent is not a big deal to us. But think about it, though, that you maybe you haven't. Um, that, you, that all you know is it's a talking serpent that's having a discussion with a naked lady under a fruit tree. That's really all you know. And that kind of thing happens every day, Right? But from this passage, we learn a few things about this serpent. First, we learn that he's more crafty than any other. That word crafty, especially when we read it in the context and when we read it knowing what we know, we think that means he's evil, that he's bad, that he's malicious. The word really just says he's wise. That's all they're really talking about. No, the serpent was more wise than all the beasts of the field. We also learn that he is a beast of the field. Not knowing what a serpent is and everything like that, he's a beast of the field. Now, At this point, you know, by what we read later on, we're led to believe perhaps, but we don't know, we're led to believe that perhaps this serpent, this beast, this creature, perhaps we don't know. Did he he walk? Did he have wings? You know, perhaps his great-grandfather was the Geico Gecko guy, you know? Who knows? He's a talking lizard, you know? Who knows if he walked on two legs or not? We don't know. And we also learn that he was made by God as everything else in the garden was. God made it. We also learn that he talked. We don't know that about any other animals in the garden. We do know that other animals later on talk because in in Numbers 22, there's a donkey that belongs to Balaam that saves his life. And I'm sure that that donkey was probably an ancestor to Mr. Ed. And there's also a talking dinosaur. But you know what? I don't want to get into when he lived or what part of Genesis he is, you know. But anyway, there are other talking animals in the Bible. But the next thing we learn is really interesting. 
we learn about the character of the serpent, which is really far more important than all the other questions that many of us get bound up in. And yet, they're interesting questions. The character of the serpent. He questions God in this passage. He contradicts God. He adds to what God says. And he steps into the scene with that. And so, as you look at the passage and you think about it and all, and one of the questions that comes up, you know, is, was this a literal snake? Who is this presence? What is happening here? Moses, the author who compiled this, the author who brought this, he calls him a beast. So, I believe he probably is a snake. Later on in the passage, God judges a snake. So he appears to be literal. But, there, but that isn't the only snake we read about in Scripture because in Genesis 1 through 3, it alludes things all many times that, that it's going to further explain later on in Scripture. So, for instance, you know, when in Genesis 1.26, it says, let us make. It's alluding to something else that it's going to give more information about later. So let us make is tipping its hat, and we've read the Scripture, we're familiar with it. It's tipping its hat at the Trinity, and there are other things in Genesis 1 through 3 that it's also pointing towards with minor details, pointing towards with greater details later. Matter of fact, in one of those passages, in Revelation 20, verse 2, it says this, And he lay hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So here, the, serp- the serpent image and devil and, and Satan are tied together. Satan has many names in the Bible. He, he's called Satan. Um, which is literally accuser. He's called the devil, which is slanderer. Lucifer, the accuser. He's called um, the adversary, the father of lies. In Matthew, even the Pharisees address him and name him Beelzebub. He's called, in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. And in John 14, Jesus calls him the ruler of the world. And then John, later on in his own epistle, chapter, one, chapter 2 of 1 John, he speaks of him as being the evil one. That's what he's called. But like, let's see what, how he's described what we learn about him. One of the things we learn is that um, in Ephesians 2, Paul speaks of him as being the spirit that is at work now with the sons of disobedience. And in John 8, Jesus calls him a murderer and a liar. He says that um, in 1 Peter, he says that he prowls like a lion, seeking to devour those. And in, in Revelation 12, he speaks of being the one who is the accuser of the saints. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes of him and says that he's, he's disguised himself as an angel of light. And Paul, again, in Ephesians 6, says that he is a schemer. It appears that the behaviors and even the names that he's called align well with this serpent of Genesis 3. So, where does, because you've probably asked yourself this question, if you probably, where does an evil creature come from in a garden that has just been announced good? Where does an evil creature that has just been, and it was good, show up from? This is 
this is just like the creation story. It leaves the reader with as many questions as it does answers. Crossing for our, 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 our statement on Satan, which we have a written statement on Satan. We don't have a written statement on, on the creation account that we abide by. We don't have a written statement on many other things. We don't have a written statement about you know, uh, the day that the rapture is going to occur and that stuff like that. We have a written statement about Satan. And we say, and this is a part of it. It's not all of it. We'll look at all of it probably next week. And it says that Satan is real, a fallen angel and the author of sin. He is the open and declared enemy of God. While we don't have an... And so what questions could we have about this enemy of God? How does he get there? Why is he there? This is one of those questions we don't have an awful lot of information about. And even the two passages that so many people go to and say, well, this tells us what we need to know, are not clear passages. So, for instance, if you want to look over into Ezekiel 28, if you want to look into Ezekiel 28, flip over there. I'm sure you probably were doing your morning devotions there this week. Yeah, it's not one of those kind of books. It's a pretty heavy book. Ezekiel 28, and then there's another passage, if you want to put your finger there, is Isaiah 14. And in both of these passages, they are making a prophecy about a human king. And yet, in the description of this prophecy, you're like going, I can't, um, how does that fit in with the human king? Instead, some of the things it says in these two passages, you look at them and you say, it very much could reveal new information about Satan. So in Ezekiel 28, I told you to turn there, I didn't turn there. In Ezekiel 28, what we read is this, verse 11. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection. Listen to this description. Pay attention to little details. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets, was in you. And on the day that you were created, you were prepared. You were anointed, you were the anointed cherub. There. That's a question mark, is it not? About being an Amer- about being a human king. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. And you were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked in the midst of the stones of fire, and you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until the righteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were eternally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O O covering cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor, and I cast you down to the ground. I put you before the kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, by the unrighteousness of your trade, you you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will be no more. 
In that passage right there, there's a few things there that seem to be out of place with speaking about a human, but could very well speak about Satan. Seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. You were an anointed cherub. In the context of angels, you know, this is where you have to go back to your Frank Peretti reading, okay? Um, you know, in the context of angels, you know, we have two named angels, Michael and Gabriel, and both of them have purpose. Michael is the archangel. He is a guardian. Um, Gabriel is an announcer. Um, and then you have cherubs. They are guardian angels. And I don't mean that in the sense that everyone has a little cherub. I mean, but they have purpose in guarding. And then you have seraphim, only mentioned once. But the one time they're mentioned, they're doing one thing. It's Isaiah 6. And they are praising. They're worshiping at the altar. And so that's what we know about, about angels. There are some other details you can discuss, but for our purposes, they, that's what we know. And so he mentions this particular individual as being a guarded cherub. And then he says also, he says, you were blameless, and then unrighteousness was found in you, and then I cast you to the ground, he says. Now, flip over to Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from heaven. Here is another prophecy to a Babylonian king. But when you read it, there are certain things about it. And matter of fact, some of you probably even have in your Bible in both of these passages, you know, my Bible says the overthrow of Lucifer because of pride and rebellion. But when you go and you do your research on it and you look at different commentaries and different scholars, you're going to find them divided about whether or not this is speaking to a person or this is speaking to a person and about Lucifer. So here in Isaiah um, 14, 12, here he says, You have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, Pay attention, you're going to hear these two words five times. I will. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow its prisoners to go home? Five times I will. And each of those I wills targeted God. Each of those I wills pitted this king, Lucifer, pitted them against God. In a strangely similar way to what we read in Genesis 3. So we go back to Genesis 3. And instead of necessarily saying, I will, because the snake is not speaking about himself, he is speaking to this woman, he is speaking to Eve. And instead of saying, I will, he says, you will. You will be like God. Verse 5, I believe it. And for God knows in the day that you will eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Yeah, there's similarities to the garden and there are strong ties there. And, and, and you'll read that some would say that, that, that while they are writing toward a human king, they're also addressing the demonic power behind that king. They're, they're addressing 
who Satan is and the way that he works. So just like the various opinions about creation story, there are various opinions about these passages and whether or not they could be referring about Satan. And so here we are, Genesis 1.31, it says, Behold, it was good. Genesis 3.1, we have a crafty serpent there. How did he get there? When did he get there? Why is he there? Again, there's lots of theories. It appears, and I believe based on Job 38, let me just show you the passage, Job 38, where in that passage... It says there when Job, God is speaking to Job, and he's even talking about the creation. We referenced it last week. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? So here he is. I just made the earth. Where were you? Tell me if you understand. I marked off its dimensions. Surely you know he's, he's arguing. He's mocking with Job here. And he says, who stretched out a measuring line across it? So here's all these things he's talking about. Creation. And then he says this at the end of the passage. While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. It appears to say that the angels were created when he was creating the earth. So there is room to consider that, that there was a celestial, a supernatural creation that occurred before the material creation, what we are, the universe, the planets, the people, the animals, the fish, the birds, all of that. But somehow or another, Satan has been created. And in Jude 1, it says the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, they left their proper dwelling. He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Second Peter also speaking there says, God did not spare angels when they sinned. And so something has happened. And there are people who write theologies and a lot about this. But something happened when God created an angelic creation. He created angels. And one of them in particular, and it appears many of them, in their own hearts sinned. And it appears that sin was pride. It appears that sin was that I want what you have. And whenever this happens, and whatever did happen rather, it began a war that rages on today. Not a war we read about ever. <laughs> we don't ever read about it. There's never been a Camp David about it. You know, there has not that I can think of ever been a ceasefire, been trying to broker on it. But there has been a war that has been raging that is supernatural and one that we can't see. Ephesians 6 speaks to it. Ephesians 6 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of weakness in heavenly places. And as we've already noted, he seeks to devour, Satan does. He prowls like a lion. He accuses us. He lies to us. He seeks to harm us. He attempts, to, he, he, tempts to, he tempts us into wanting to sin, just like he did Jesus after the fast. So, Satan wanted to be like God. He wanted to be like God. In other words, what I really think that he was after was, I want what I want without the fear of repercussion or judgment. I want to be like you because you don't answer to anyone. And I want that too. Only God exists without limits. And as he says in Job and Isaiah, who has counseled me? Who is my advisor? So in other words, God answers to no one. God answers to no one. 
And Satan wanted the same thing. And actually, so do we. So do we. When Satan's plan for ultimate autonomy, that, and that's what we're talking about here, is autonomy, that I get to do what I want to do when I want it without having to answer to you for it. All of us were teenagers one time. That was our big deal. I want autonomy. I'm grown up now. I can do this. I don't need to ask you for permission, but I could handle your money still, but I don't need to ask you for permission. And that is still going on, and that's what you're doing in your jobs, and that's what we're doing as citizens, and that's what we do in a spiritual relationship as well. I want autonomy. I want to make decisions for myself. And when Satan's big plan for autonomy failed, he decided to take down with him all he could. As we said in our doctrinal statement, as we can read in Scripture, he hates God with a burning passion, and he hates the image keeper. He hates those who bears his image as well, and that is you and I. We are his children. Therefore, if I can't hurt the parent, and he hasn't been able to do that, if I can't hurt the parent, the next best thing is to hurt the child. If I can't touch the parent, I'll cause him pain through his children. So Satan begins with Eve, the creation. And for a moment, he thinks he's accomplished something as as she takes the bite out of that fruit. And his goal is to take away as much of God's unique glory as he can. Because if he can't have it, no one else should have it. So he roams the earth in the case of Job, seeking to prove that God's choice man will still curse him if provoked enough. And so throughout history, Satan, this man, this serpent, this creature that we find in Genesis 3, he has been seeking his opportunity to harm God's people and God's nation and his church. And what we find is that no law, that no ban on the Bible, on Christians... No cultural restrictions, no lack of resources, nothing that has ever been created, nothing that has ever been attempted by mankind and promoted by Satan has ever, 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 ever worked in stopping the gospel. How, I don't even think of an appropriate word to use, how much rage do you think the enemy of our soul has about that? That everything he can possibly do, he cannot do enough to disrupt the plan of God. And matter of fact, the thing is this, is that our God is so incredibly sovereign that no matter what Satan does, and no matter the choices we made, no matter even the choice, here we go into one of those doctrinal areas, no matter even the choice that Satan made did not disrupt God's plan or take away his sovereignty in any way, shape, form, or fashion. How angry must that do? How, how, how full of rage must he be that nothing he can do can disrupt the sovereignty of God or his plan. Satan chooses to make us the pawns in his battle. 
That can be heard in the news. That can be heard, and we see it in our own lives. Some of us have had a year where one thing after another has happened. Some of us have years like that. Realize that that is not about you. Realize that we are in a spiritual warfare. Realize that your heavenly Father and the battle that is raging around you, that he is still in control and that he is taking every quote-unquote bad thing and he is using it for good because he's that kind of God. But there is a greater truth at play here that even is a reason why we are here together. And that greater truth is this, is that as we've already said, Satan is a defeated foe. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan was defeated. His threats became hollow and without power. And so Satan's big deal was that his stranglehold over mankind was, you will die. That's what he said to Eve. He said, you won't die if you do this. That, That issue of death is what motivates and prompts mankind, and that's his tool that he uses and says, you won't die. And so what Christ did was he came and he died, and then he rose from the dead. And in his death, he has defeated Satan because he's left Satan with nothing to accuse, with nothing to dangle in front of mankind because man now has the ability to be free from the power of death. The spiritual battle, we know how it ends. We know how it ends. In Revelation, where there are myriads of myriads of myriads of angels, and even we will one day be there from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group worshiping around that throne. And so while we don't see what happened in heaven, we see how he has entered into mankind and he has begun to try to influence it. But all that influence will never derail the plan of God and it will never derail the glory of God in any way. And that's why he is such an amazing God is that he takes even this, even the evil of Satan, and he still is able to derive glory when he redeems it. Satan doesn't win, even though he still tries. Satan doesn't win, even though he tries.